1: Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this
0: podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, coming to you this week from Vancouver in British Columbia and Canada. I'm up here attending the annual Virtuoso Symposium. Uh, Virtuoso is the largest collection of luxury travel advisors, uh, and uh, they they, they do unbelievable work. We've reported from their symposia over the years, all over the world, last year from South Africa, from Madrid, uh, you name it, we've been there. Uh, And and it brings in uh, every CEO of every travel-related company, airlines, hotels, cruise lines, the top travel advisors from around the world, and and from 85 different countries by the time you finish uh, toting it all up. It's quite an interesting mix and an opportunity for people to exchange ideas and figure out where we are, where we're going, and what mistakes have been made along the way as well. Uh, One of those who is attending this is my guest on this show Uh, he is uh, also the uh, editor-at-large of National Geographic Traveler his name is Costas Christ hey Costas.
1: hi Peter so
0: I guess the the question I have for you is you know at an organization like virtuoso which you know these are luxury travel advisors they they come from all over the world they represent so many different countries so many different interests so many different clients um and everybody wants to you know do something that's over the top upscale luxurious peak experiences is a, is, a, is a key word that they've been talking about how much of that can be interspersed or intertwined with responsible travel
1: well i think the idea of a peak experience. You know, what is a peak experience? This morning, Peter, um, we heard a speaker and he talked about how virtual travel advisors, their job is, you know, to make our dreams come true. In other words, for travelers' dreams to come true. And that includes the idea of peak experiences, whatever that might be. Maybe it is an opportunity to travel to Africa and go on a wildlife safari. Maybe it's hiking to Machu Picchu. But I would take it a step further and I would say our job is not only to make the travelers dreams come true, uh, it's also to make the dreams come true of the people and the places we visit. In other words, tourism is a receive and a give in its best form. So if we take the idea of experiences and we couple it with two things, I want an incredible life changing experience on my next trip. Well, that becomes that much more incredible when I finished that trip thinking, my God, that was great. The wildlife I saw, the hike I took, the villagers I met. And at the same time, that trip contributed to improving their lives and protecting that wildlife and saving the heritage that I visited. Then you have the real magic.
0: Exactly. But now you have to come up with a criteria that makes that work.
1: Well, lucky for us, we're in the United Nations International Year of Sustainable Tourism. And although for many of your listeners and many people, sustainable tourism may sound like a new thing, the criteria and the ideas behind it have been percolating for a pretty long time, for over 20 years. And to distill it just very clear for all the listeners, what is sustainable tourism? It is defined by three key pillars— environmentally friendly practices, the reduce, the reuse, the recycle part of things. That's what most people think about. But it also goes beyond the green, and it embraces support for the protection of culture and natural heritage. That's the second pillar. And the third pillar, which is social and economic well-being of local people. Now, you wrap that together with a wonderful vacation, and then you have a transformation of the global travel industry that's not just about what am I getting, it's also about what am I giving? And there's no
0: and that sounds great. I mean, it, it, you, you put it in, in perfect perspective, but at the same time, which travel organizations, which travel vendors, which travel providers have figured that out?
1: Well a lot more than there used to be, put it that way. Well, okay, there could have been just one, now there are two, I mean, no. No, 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 we are, I firmly believe, I've been, uh, you know, you said something years ago, uh, that was a quote, and I can't remember it, but you said something. Most people
0: say that to me, thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, but you said something to the effect of, you know, Costas Chris has been on the front lines of green travel before uh, green travel movement before travel was green or even a movement, it was along those lines. So my point, my point is this, Peter, looking at this over the last 25 years, what we are seeing now is where in the beginning it was what companies were doing it. It's almost flipping now to what companies aren't doing sustainability. So in other words, most companies are embracing it. The question is the scale at which they're doing it within their companies. Now, just a little snapshot. Okay. I looked at 26 virtuoso hotels and suppliers, all right? Just 26, okay? Those 26 hotels and suppliers over a period of two years generated in direct. Contributions over five million dollars going into local community development projects, for example, feeding 20,000 kids daily, providing clean drinking water for 4,300 families, environmental education to 14,000 children, and At the same time, those same companies are protecting over 3 million acres. To be precise, 3,200,010 acres of wilderness and marine habitat, endangered wilderness and marine habitat, home to some of the rarest and threatened animals on our planet. So the point here is travel can be a powerful opportunity, and the connection that's making it different now, is that companies are realizing that people wanna also buy these experiences. In other words, those peak experiences also include- A sustainability component. That's right. The travel
0: advisors at Virtuoso, I mean, their clients are are essentially the creme de la creme of demographics, economic stability, disposable income. They all have passports they're all well-educated, they're all well-compensated, they travel. Is it their kids who are, who are educating them, or the travel advisors who are educating them, or are they just come to the party already educated about
1: sustainability? Um, it's, it's a little bit of both. And what I mean by that is this. So the baby boomer generation, that's you and that's me. This is a generation that gave birth to Earth Day in 1973. It's a generation that cut its teeth in the late 60s, early 70s. I'm wanting to change the world. It was the generation who saw that first image of the Earth in space shot from the moon. And holy smokes, we're just a little tiny blue planet floating out in this big thing in the the universe. And guess what? Suddenly, we look less like different countries, and we look more like a common people on a common planet. So that thinking was embedded in the baby boomer generation and today it's not a big jump for that generation with their disposable income many of them at least who want to take vacations who want those peak experiences to still touch the inspiration that was in their youth the difference is their children the Millennials today They were kind of born in this with a, from the get-go, this makes sense. So the millennial generation, by and large today, is just assuming sustainability rather than saying we need to do it. It's like, what do you mean you're not? So they're not demanding it, they're just expecting it. They're expecting it. And any travel business out there that's thinking, sure, harness the, you know, market of the baby boomers. That's been talked about forever. But if you want to talk about who's going to be your business 10 years from now and 15 years from now, if you are not on the sustainable tourism bandwagon and trying to figure out how you can connect your company with that, then you're going to miss this entire you know, the train ride into the future of the travel business. Have you been able to sort of break out pockets of the country
0: of the United States, states, individual cities that get it, and individual states and cities that just don't? And what I want you to do is I want you to think about that, because when we come back, I'm going to grill you on that, because obviously there's still work to be done. Let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of work to be done. But if you do the work, it's a win-win. It's a win-win for everybody. Back with more right after this.
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS. We have been talking to Costas Chris, the uh, editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler. He has another title he'll share with you in a second. Um, And where we last left off was talking about, you know, things are getting better. People are doing their homework. They're redefining it in ways that sustainability, in ways that make sense, not only just to them or to their experience, but to the communities that are the most directly uh, involved with it or affected by it. but my question to you is this Can you or have you broken out which, it, it, just in this country, the states, the cities that have figured this out, and the states and the cities that haven't?
1: Well, there's some big, uh, with a broad stroke. You can answer that question and and say, yes, you know, you can, for example, take a look at New York, which is certainly done a lot on the sustainability front as a state and as a city. There's no question that when you look at states like California, they're the leader of the pack. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, And if you go north there, Oregon, of course, Washington state, they all are pretty progressive. Vermont is another state where sustainability looms large. But rather than kind of which states are doing it, which aren't, it's much more of a mosaic than that. And you have pockets in pretty much everywhere. So for example, Uh, I was just on the phone the other day with some folks down in Alabama. You wouldn't necessarily think of Alabama and think sustainability in the same sentence, but there are people there really pushing the envelope on that in Gulf State Park down there who want to build what they will believe will be a state-of-the-art sustainable tourism model. You have companies like Royal Insider in Louisiana that are tirelessly working, for example, to protect Louisiana's cultural heritage and connect travelers with that in a meaningful way. So my point is, all across the country, you have innovation going on. Uh, there are some states that are way ahead of it from a government level. Like? Well, the states that I mentioned. For example, I told you, California for sure. They, they rule the roost on this. And they've been at this way for a, a long time, and they're continuing to do it. And actually, in our current political situation nationally, California has become pretty much the, the defender of our country on sustainability standards uh, in the face of a White House that doesn't believe in it. Well, let's talk about that because what's interesting to me, and, and, all, and this
0: is all relatable to the other day, I, I think you'll agree high speed rail. High speed rail would solve so many of our problems in terms of airlines, delays, automobiles, um, congestion. Um, it's been said that if you had high speed rail and just in the north, real high speed rail, not a cella. Real high speed rail in the northeast corridor of the United States, which would take up and alleviate all the congestion from the small commuter airlines that are flying on flights of under 400 miles, you'd eliminate all the delays from LaGuardia and all the the, the backlog and all the interconnectivity that doesn't work. Um, And that's just in the northeast corridor. Take a look at what they're doing in California. That's what brought me to this idea. They're now working on a north south high speed rail system. Uh, Other states said they weren't even interested. And yet, California did it. Now, in Florida, they're building something called Brightline, which is going from Orlando all the way to Palm Beach with a stop in Miami. Um, it's not true high speed because it only gets up to about 125 miles an hour for just a few miles. Uh, but it's faster. Now, here's the thing that's amazing to me. I can We can do the numbers and figure out if if that high-speed rail or semi-high-speed rail in Florida took off... How many cars would be taken off the freeways that are burning fossil fuel? That would really be helpful. Same thing in California. What's interesting to me, which drives me nuts, and, and I don't even, and when I give you this number, Kosas, you probably get angry too. It's 2017. Are you ready? We're acknowledging and celebrating, and we don't have high-speed rail in this country, the 50th anniversary of the bullet train in Japan. How did that happen? They've been going high speed for 50 years, and we're still trying to get up to speed.
1: Well, Peter, that's uh, the, the answer is not simple, but it does have something to do with a very strong uh, industry of vehicles in this country and the fact that that industry has often lobbied hard against public transport. So the issue that you're talking about right now is not a question of lack of innovation what you just talked about in the northeast corridor has been on the drawing table for a decade now how do you move it from a you know idea into practice that would alleviate so many things including the decrease the amount of co2 emissions you know take more cars off less delays at airports so on and so forth well you know i guess the uh, the popular The popular answer is for people to speak to their congressmen because for the last better part of a decade, those projects have been trying to get funding and they have been shut down repeatedly.
0: It's amazing to me because I think the automobile industry has to almost redefine uh, what they're producing and why they're producing it. When I was 17 years old, all I wanted was a car, right? That was my culture. That was what we wanted. Ask a seventeen-year-old today if he
1: wants a car. He looks at you like you're out of your mind. Right? That's right. That's right. And, and and there's nothing wrong with having a car. That's great. But the point is, why should we not invest in the kind of innovation that you were just describing? The technologies there, the abilities there. Yes, it costs money, but you know what? There's a way to get that money too. Right now, we, we've been living for the better part of a decade in a country, as you know, with one, side of that, uh, one part of that country, in terms of our you know, uh, the Congress as it's been, fighting against anything to do with sustainability. And another part, the previous government, the administration of Barack Obama, trying to push that envelope forward. So you know, nothing's getting done in that sense what do you do we educate people to understand that these things are in our best interests in other words having more public transport so people can get around more easily so people who don't have the means or don't want to invest a lot of money in a car or maybe one car is enough and they don't need two or three can take advantage of public transport you and i both know that in most places in the world public transport moves a lot of people around We don't have a lot of that in the United States. But what's worse than innovating to put those things in place, such as high-speed rail, is we're not even investing in upkeeping the very rail system we have to begin with. This is the crazy part.
0: Right now, uh, on the long-haul services of Amtrak, they're losing anywhere between $150 and $200 per passenger per day per train. They can't even make a a break-even. So how can they reinvest anything into the maintenance of the system they already have? And every year, Congress tries to take it away from them.
1: There you go. Yes, that's it. And the bigger discussion here and the bigger, you know, the bigger picture, though, is this. On the positive side, as we were talking a few minutes ago, we have a majority of a generation, the so-called baby boomers, who understand the importance of embracing environmentally friendly practices and living in a more sustainable society. The truth is we kid ourselves into thinking it's a choice. Well, we could be a more sustainable society or maybe we don't wanna be a more sustainable society. It's not a choice. It's our future. It's an imperative. It's the only option we have. And if we don't get on board with this soon, we'll pay a price for that. And we're already beginning to pay a price for that. And the entire travel experience, from the time you decide to go somewhere
0: making that reservation to the time you return, I estimate there are about 47 different points of abuse that are awaiting you, just in terms of the the process, right? And that's just in terms of your own experience. But in terms of sustainability, my question to you is how many different points of opportunity are there for you to do practice Sustainable practices along that route.
1: There are many first of all, there's our ability to say no to refuse So for example, we don't have to take plastic straws in our drink Which now wherever we may be but in the North America alone We're generating billions and billions of straws guess where they're ending up right out there in the Pacific Ocean OK, so we can say no to things we don't want. We don't we can say no to styrofoam. We can say no to plastic. Those are decisions that we, ha- can, we I, can Can do. I
0: give you one that you haven't thought about? And I don't get a chance to do this very often, but I'm going to give you one you have not thought about. All right. You ready? Good. Party balloons. Yes. Let me talk to you about that. It. All those metallic Trust me. party balloons, right, with mylar and right, they don't degrade.
1: No, they don't.
0: And you know what? They're out there in the ocean because they go out. To, they go up in the air and they're taken up by the by the by the airflow. And next thing you know, they are out there in the ocean as as masses of just mylar.
1: Masses of mylar, and of course, they're ending up in the food chain. At the end of the day, all that plastic, we end up eating it. It ends up in the very seafood that we consume. We are beginning to become the garbage that we throw away. A sustainable society isn't, you know, some kind of pipe dream right now. Yes, there's a lot to be done, but the innovations are there. And it's our duty and our job, both to our future generations that will follow us. It's not a question of we're borrowing the planet from our children right now what's going on is we're stealing the planet from our grandchildren we've got to turn this around it's really straight science peter at the end and what i mean by that about straight science is this we live on a finite planet and it has finite resources so we either learn how to create a sustainable life system or else we're not going to have a planet well thanks for making my day hey the good news about this is and this is the thing that gives me inspiration. Every, I've, you've been all over the world. I've been over a hundred countries right now. Every single place I go, I see people moving this agenda forward. Those who no exceptions. I see, of course there are exceptions. There are dinosaurs. There are folks stuck in an old world or whatever they think, you know, uh, oh yes. You know, the cosmic forces will determine whether we live or we die or whatever. The point is this everywhere I go. Take Kenya and the green belt movement, you know, which is a group of village women who are reforesting that country. I mean, you just take that and you can times it in almost every country. So I see tremendous. The truth is I see tremendous optimism. I see tremendous potential and I see a lot of progress. We're in a city. Vancouver right now, Vancouver, this is
0: the poster child for
1: for smart, a decade ago, Vancouver created a sustainable tourism master plan for the city of Vancouver. They were way ahead of the game. So there are cities like this and other parts of the world. So the truth is, it's not about, oh, gee, there's no hope. There's lots of hope. Let's get on board with it and let's do it.
0: You know, we talk about in 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 the cutting edge wars of immigration, we talk about sanctuary cities, about immigration. We should also be talking about sanctuary cities for sustainability because Vancouver is one, San Francisco is another, Los Angeles is becoming one. uh, But we also have a political climate in which we have the other side of that coin, which is all the deniers, all the people who say there's no such thing as global uh, climate change. And, and of course, 98% of all the scientists who are actually logical thinkers will tell you that's that's garbage. Of course there's global climate change and there's global warming
1: there is and you you know people are seeing it in villages around the world i mean you don't have to go to harvard or get a science degree to figure out how the world is changing around you you're seeing species appear in places where they'd never appeared before they were in warmer clients and climates and now they're appearing up north in places where they haven't been known before so we're seeing a lot of changes yes Climate change is real, but climate change is not an apocalypse waiting to happen. Climate change is something that we have the innovations and the abilities and the Even the Paris Agreement, the climate change agreement, put in place the mechanisms to address this. And the fact of the matter is not everybody agrees, and you'll have people who just stick their hands in the sand. You'll have others who will try and, you know, for their own personal greed or interest, try and, you know, turn the argument upside down, disinformation, all the rest of it. But the fact is, the movement forward for a more sustainable planet and the millennial generation and the baby boomers today and the travelers that are going out there and they're saying hey you know what we don't want to just have a vacation we want to have a vacation that we believe is helping to make the world a better place by staying in hotels that are committed to the environment
0: hold on to that thought because
1: when we come back i want we'll do a quick extra segment here about who's actually
0: doing good costas chris from national geographic we'll be right back cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And we're back on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We've been talking to Costas Christy, editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler. Who's been depressing me throughout this show, and perhaps you as well, but it's information you have to have. But here comes the good news.
1: He's got good news. I do have good news, and I think what I was just talking about is good news. The fact that we are, put it this way, Peter, if somebody said to me 15 years ago, Would I think that the travel industry or countries would be as advanced as they are today on sustainable living, I would have said, I hope so, but I somehow doubt it. I'm more optimistic today than I was 20 years ago. I'm more optimistic today than I was 15 years ago. We talked a moment ago about the city of Vancouver. Vancouver isn't an outlier. It's not one city in some place that's doing this. There are cities like this around the world. Amsterdam is another city. Berlin is another city. These are cities with sustainable master plans. You talked about, uh, you talked about San Francisco. It's another one. Guess what? Who knew? Miami. Miami. Miami has a sustainable master plan for the city yeah but in Miami the sustainable master
0: plan requires everybody to wear black on black <laughs> I just have to say they're all escapees from a Robert
1: Palmer video they know it, you know what I know it I'm just looking yeah. but you asked a moment ago about you know so who's who's doing some of this stuff and we're seated right now in we're conducting this interview in your your studio here in uh, the uh, Pacific Rim Hotel Fairmont Pacific Rim well Fairmont in 1989 published the world's first hotel guide to going green Okay. So they've been at it for a long time. Fairmont. I saw one of their hotels, by the way, in in Arizona. They did a remarkable job just with French fry oil. All the above. Uh, I'll tell you what. I I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. I saw them uh, in Banff running vehicles on uh, doing landscaping and mowing lawns with vehicles powered on French fry oil. Okay. At the same time, Fairmont has instituted a policy of sustainable seafood. They've instituted a policy of reduction of plastic, eliminating it as much as possible. We're faced with, for example, um, right now what they call you know, colony collapse disorder. In other words, native bee populations. And yet you have Fairmont, which are doing beehives on roofs now. Yeah. What's amazing is how many hotels, you never think about this, but how many hotels
0: and their chefs have become beekeepers? around the world. They're actually putting, they're putting hives up on the roof and I'm going, how much honey can you make? And they said, well, it's not just about that. It's about trying to do the right thing.
1: So there are hotel groups and then there are many, many hotels. I mean, literally, uh, right now, I'm in the process of coordinating the Virtuoso Sustainable Tourism Leadership Awards for hotel category and for tour operator categories. All right. I, in the last few days alone, we've had over almost 200 hotels submit a very, very detailed Uh, application, an award entry that lays out their sustainability best practices. So uh, this morning, who would have guessed? I was talking with the CEO of Seabourn. Now, Cruises is a whole other dimension. He came up to me and he just said, hey, guess what? We've just invested in a major partnership with UNESCO to help protect the uh, world heritage sites around the world. Which, by
0: the way, most people don't realize this. Most world heritage sites are very badly presented. They're in disrepair. A majority of them are.
1: Yeah, well, they're struggling. Why are they struggling? Often because of finances, uh, mismanagement in certain cases. But UNESCO has done, by and large, a great job at protecting intangible heritage, cultural heritage, and also historical fixed heritage, meaning monuments and buildings, you know, and that I think is very, very important. So, right now, what I. And by the
0: way, when you see Seabourn saying that, that means they're doing it because they're either getting feedback from their passengers or they're taking the lead to say, let's do something right that our
1: passengers can actually relate to when we go to these destinations. Royal Caribbean just surveyed globally 60,000 passengers. The vast majority of that survey came back saying environmental footprint, And these were cruise passengers. Environmental footprint of the cruise industry of ships is extremely important to us. Royal Caribbean, of course, has just embarked on a very large partnership to save the health of the oceans with World Wildlife Fund. So does this mean, hey, everything's great, it's all fine? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that there is a very positive transformation happening. And those of us who are travelers, our travel choices make a difference. We should ask the people we travel with, the hotels we stay in, what are your environmental policies? Can you tell me how you're involved in sustainable tourism practices? Are you contributing to your local community? Those three questions alone, they need to hear that because at the end of the day, it's we who travel who are going to change the world by letting these companies know what matters to us.
0: You and I have talked about this before and it continues to bother me. You know, you have local regulations that are well-intended there's no doubt about it. You know, and, and they make sense, except they're not properly enforced. People get around them. In Thailand, for example, there's a rule that any hotel with more than 61 units—I don't know how they came up with 61, but they did—has to provide facilities for gray water, for black water, for employee housing, so that you're not pumping raw sewage into the, into the ocean, right? And you see these 300-unit hotels opening up, and they're pumping raw sewage into the ocean. How'd they get around the regulation? Because they sold— the, the building off into parcels of 60 units each to different owners. So they all got around it. And now guess what's happening on those beaches in Thailand? They've got to close them for a week or two at a time because there's just so much raw sewage out there. At which point do these guys not get it? Peter,
1: there will always be people who don't care. Always be people looking out for a fast buck, looking for a way to get around something or other for their own personal gain. And at the same time, there will be visionaries and there will be leaders. And in the sustainability movement right now, this isn't a question of a few people here and there. It is a global movement and it is going to change the industry. And by that, I mean, travel and tourism that you and I have been a part of in ways that the future will look back and think, how did it even happen? It? it will look like the stone age and the reason for that is again when you have properties it's it's a race to achieve sustainable best practices and that to me is music to my ears and the word
0: that i use is the c word consequences the consequences here are huge but i look at enforceability as well and, and the the analogy i'll give you is the tarmac delay rule right The airlines kept on saying, let us regulate ourselves. We'll make sure that this doesn't happen. We won't keep you out on the tarmac for more than three hours or five hours or nine hours. And the government finally said, no. The the Department of Transportation said, we don't trust you to regulate yourself. It sounds good, but we don't trust you. We're going to make a rule. And these are the consequences. If you keep your passengers waiting any more than one minute past three hours on the tarmac without bringing them back to the gate and giving up on the flight— You will be liable to fines of up to $27,500 per passenger. And the airlines fought it. Oh, we'll never be able to operate the airlines. It'll be disastrous for us economically. They made the rule. How many planes have been delayed more than three hours on the tarmac? Hmm. Maybe three. Three Mm -hmm. in the last five years. How many fines have been assessed? Maybe two. That's it. How many passengers were disconnected? Discon- None. How many, how many flights are out of sequence? How many crews are out of cycle? It actually was a win-win for everybody. How much fuel was not burned in, in, in ridiculous nature because they were sitting out there going absolutely nowhere? So I take that and say to you, how do you come up with a sustainability delay rule uh, where you can basically say to somebody, okay, if you want
1: to pump raw sewage into the ocean, this is the consequence, and here's how we enforce it. Well, that's the enforcement is the key thing. We have a Clean Water Act in this country. There are Clean Water Acts in many places. We have a Clean Air Act in this country. Unfortunately, when I say this country, I'm referring to the United States. Unfortunately... Uh, the current administration is trying to dismantle those rules, but it is up to us, the people, the travelers, just as much as those who spoke loud over what happened with the airline industry. And they may have been kicking and screaming, but at the end of the day, it happened. There's an effort to try and turn the word regulation into a bad word. Regulations aren't bad. Regulations. happen for a reason. Happen for a reason. And what I mean by that is, you know, clean air regulation. Yeah, it's for a reason. And really, a great part of that reason was because seven New England states sued the states in the Midwest over emissions that were drifting over their states. So the point is this, the good news, there are more people today, more travelers than ever before who are saying this matters to them and they're going to start buying travel based on these principles. There are more companies than ever before that are saying, we understand this, we have finally figured out that we sell culture and nature and we better protect and invest in protecting culture and natural heritage for future generations. There are more companies that understand that, for example, you can't have a great vacation if the local people there don't support you or despise you or consider tourists somebody who are ripping off their heritage, i.e., when local people benefit from tourism, they become partners in a new vision for tourism that uplifts everybody. So right now, the way I see it, we're in a sustainability revolution right about at the 50% mark. The question isn't, and you've heard me say this before, does sustainable tourism work? Can it make a difference? Can we change the world? The answer is yes. The question is, how far can we take it we're about the halfway mark right now it's a high stakes game i'm encouraged that we're going to go the full distance and score the touchdown a football
0: analogy that i never saw coming thank you <laughs> costas chris editor-at-large of national geographic Traveler. and when we come back you think this is wild we're going to be talking to author larry olmstead the author of the new york times bestseller real food fake food What you don't know what you're eating is really going to surprise you. Back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour, I'm Peter Greenberg.
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to
0: the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. My next guest uh, has written a New York Times bestseller book, which, by the way, if you're in the restaurant business, you're probably not happy to read. However, if you are in the human being business, you might be happy to read. The name of the book is Real Food, Fake Food, and his name is Larry Olmsted. Hey, Larry. Hey, Peter. Great to be here. Explain the title and explain the concept. Well, uh... I always like to use the
2: example of a lobster. People ask me this question all the time. So you buy like a Maine lobster, it comes out of the water, it's got the claws, you see it, uh, nothing else looks like it, you get a whole lobster and you know what it is. But you order a bowl of lobster bisque or lobster stew or lobster salad, and uh, at least according to Inside Edition, in the United States, there's about a 30% chance your dish has no lobster in it anymore. So that's the real food, fake food conundrum. Are you getting what you're paying for?
0: Well, I know uh, in New York, for example, At least half the sushi restaurants that are saying you're getting yellowtail, you are not getting yellowtail. It's more like 90%. Are you serious?
2: I am serious. S- sushi is the worst category, and the more desirable fish like yellowtail tuna, red snapper, in excess of 90%, not what you order. Okay, so what what am I getting
0: that says it's yellowtail?
2: Uh, often tile fish, which is so heavy in mercury that it's on the FDA's do not l- eat list for pregnant women, the elderly, and children. Is that why I'm glowing in the dark now? Uh, that is probably why you're glowing in the dark. Or tilapia, which uh, is farmed a lot of it with drugs that may or may not be approved in this country. All
0: right, so we know what the problem is in some of these restaurants, how do I find the solution? How do I know when I go to a restaurant, what, do I come in with my, my uh, guys from the FDA? I mean, well, how do I know? Uh, one of the things I learned is you can't really rely on the FDA to do very much for you. Um, okay, th- then I'm not going in with anybody,
2: right? <laughs> Maybe my <laughs> uncle. I mean, who? And it's, it's not just a restaurant issue. It's retail as well. So this affects people cooking at home. And in, in each uh, chapter of my book, I give specific tips like restaurant questions to ask, especially
0: about seafood. All right, so let's, let's, seafood. Let's, let's do that. I'm going to uh, ABC Sushi Restaurant and I've got my heart set on uh, uh, you know, spicy tuna hand roll and yellowtail sashimi, what do I
2: ask? Well, spicy tuna is one of the ones I recommend basically never ordering. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, because I'm picking all the ones today. Um, yeah. the, the, you know, there are some really great sushi restaurants in New York. You know, everything. You know, your Nobu's, your Masa's, your high uh, expense account type places. But the vast majority of sushi places in the United States are are not high end. Do not fly in fish from Hawaii and the the uh, fish market in Tokyo. And a lot of them, especially for the uh, spicy tuna, they actually buy what's called tuna scrapings, which is basically a jar of the pieces of tuna that are scraped off the bone after all the rest is cut. And that's why spicy tuna rolls are all chopped up in sauce. The general rule of fake food is the less it looks like the real thing in the wild, the more chopped up it is, uh, the more you should stay away from it.
0: Well, that just left the menu. Okay.
2: And what about yellowtail? So yellowtail, the best thing to do is is ask um, where they get the fish. All good seafood restaurants have a seafood supplier. They don't get something like um, Red Snapper or or Fresh Alaskan Salmon or Yellowtail Tuna from the same company that delivers their cabbage. And if they don't know, if they can't say, oh, yeah, I use seat to Table in Boston or, you know, can name their seafood distributor, that's an immediate red flag. If they can't. If they cannot. Wow. If they can, they could still lie to you. But most of them say, oh, I don't know. And that's not good. But this goes beyond just seafood. Absolutely. Um, some of the you know w- the one that's gotten the most press is olive oil. Sixty Minutes did okay. A let's talk
0: about this. Yep. Okay, this I've never understood, and I, I came up with an idea in my own demented way of how to market thing and make bazillions. Okay, <laughs> because everybody's selling extra virgin olive oil. Like I know what that means. Mm-hmm. I want to come up with a whole new brand of olive oil called Slutty Girl <laughs> Olive Oil. Right? I just right? With a great like Vargas uh, uh, drawing on the side, you know, that look in the eye, that come hither look. It's like bad girl olive oil, right? Because you have extra virgin and you have bad girl, which one do you want to cook with? One is already cooking it in my book, but let's get serious here. Define extra virgin for me. What does that really mean? Right. So olive uh,
2: oil is is different from all your other major oils, which are all from seeds, sunflower, uh, soy, corn are all from seeds. Olive oil is from fruit and it's very much like fresh pressed orange juice you take an olive and you basically crush it you do it in a centrifuge usually but you expel the juice from the olive and that's olive oil then it's graded based on both uh, laboratory tests and sensory tests, and it is either graded, if it scores the highest, it's virgin. Who's doing the scoring? Uh, there's an international standard from the IOC, which in this case is not the Olympic Commission, but the International Olive Oil Commission, which set this standard that the U.S. uses. Uh, most countries around the world have adopted this standard. And
0: where is this International Olive Oil Commission based?
2: Uh, it's in Europe. I think it's Italy? based in Italy. Okay. Um, uh, and um, so... Um, The uh, USDA, which regulates the olive oil, um, deferred to the IOC standard. So it's got certain benchmarks in the lab tests. If it scores above a certain amount, it's extra virgin. Otherwise, it's virgin. Otherwise, it's lampante, which is the grade that's not fit for human consumption.
0: Whoa. So you don't see that sold in the grocery store? You do not. What is it used for?
2: Um, well usually then it's oil change re- in it, your car It's then refined or, or basically distilled and then it can be used as a food product and usually it's blended in so if you see any olive oil that doesn't say extra virgin like Mediterranean blend olive oil, you should absolutely not buy it but the problem is a lot of what's labeled extra virgin does not meet the legal standard and that's really what this whole sort of scandal that's gotten a lot of publicity has been about.
0: okay so this begs the question are there olive oil inspectors? Uh, there
2: are, and actually, so the FDA uh, inspects imported olive oil, which is the vast majority. We have some from California, but almost all of our olive oil is imported. And Congress, uh, just last year, ordered the FDA to greatly increase its inspection due to the concerns that the olive oil is being cut with uh, potential allergens, mainly soy and peanut oil, which are cheaper.
0: Well, speaking of soy... Let's get into the meat category here mm-hmm. because for years the one of the controversies especially for the fast food chains is that you know their hamburgers are like so heavily soyed or so heavily uh, with, with like cereal filler yeah, yeah. Well, so,
2: I mean, I don't know if you saw the news just a couple of weeks ago, there was a report out of Canada about Subway saying that their chicken sandwiches were were 50% soy and not chicken. And this caused a lot Whoa. of headlines. But Jared's
0: already um, in prison, so we're, we're, we're yeah, dealing with him.
2: Jared had nothing to do with it, yeah, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, actually, um, there was retesting in the U.S. and it didn't hold up, so it appears that that was sort of a, a failed lab test made into a sensational headline. But the reality is, I I, I, re- I went on uh, last week, the Dr. Oz show, and talked about this, Um, Soy is used as a filler in uh, a lot of fast food, but it's like typically 1% to 2%. So it's not really something consumers have to worry a lot about unless they have a soy allergy.
0: Right. I mean, it's not going to kill you unless you have the allergy. Right. It's just not really going to be 100% meat.
2: Yeah. And a lot of time, I mean... there's you know it's there's pros and cons but the fast food industry you know they have to now have nutritional labeling so a big part of it is having every patty every chicken sandwich be exactly the same portion size and weight so that those are accurate and to do that they basically have to be processed they can't just take like one whole chicken breast and then another one that weighs a different amount and sell them
0: so that's the opportunity for them to fill stuff in there.
2: Yeah, they well, they they basically chop up chicken, add uh, flavorings, marinades, stabilizers, and filler, which include soy, and then reform it into very uniform patties. Okay,
0: you just gave me a word that scared me. <laughs> Stabilizer,
2: uh, just keep keeps it fresh longer.
0: Oh boy, this is uh, this. You got to read the book. <laughs> this is an unappetizing segment that we're doing. Uh, now I'll give you one cuz I'm one of those guys who remembers when chocolate tasted like chocolate, mm-hmm. right? And I'm talking about American made chocolate, like a Hershey bar. Right? When I first, you know, had my first Hershey bar, I guarantee you there was more chocolate in there than there is today. Because now they they have there's something called lecithin, mm-hmm. right? Explain well, I mean, it's just... If that's you, an emulsifier, right? Yeah,
2: if you, and if you look at the ingredients, and chocolate's not something I really cover in detail in my book, but but I do say, you know, anything you buy, you look at the ingredients, and there's a lot of products. Like, I buy a brand of, of pasta from Italy, and you look at the ingredients, and it's flour, water, salt, and that's it. But then you pick up a box of the more common supermarket pastas in this country, and they have seven or eight ingredients, some of which are chemicals, and you don't need that to make pasta. So, And you don't need a lot of uh, additives to make chocolate. So with those kind of products the easiest thing to do is just look at the ingredient level and if there's more than like three things or anything you have never heard of just don't buy it
0: wow we're talking to Larry Olmsted the author of Real Food Fake Food what's your biggest hit list item that's fake Um, my
2: personal one is Kobe beef uh, I've been to Japan a number of times um, I wrote an article about this for Forbes I got a tremendous amount of attention around the world uh, almost all of the Kobe beef you see on menus in the United States is fake uh, whether it's sliders or $300 steaks at fancy expense account steakhouses there are literally and, 10, nobody's, and
0: nobody's been busted for
2: this uh, nobody there's been a couple of class action suits against some uh, larger restaurant chains but the way that the, the basically the penalties work in the restaurant industry is is that's your real risk is a class action suit and that's never going to happen to, like, an individual location. They don't do enough volume to make it make sense for They're the lawyers. They're not a big enough target for the lawyers. Exactly. So there there's literally 10 restaurants in the entire United States that import and serve real Kobe beef, and there's hundreds that have Kobe on the menu, and all but those 10 are lying. All right, so the
0: obvious question I have to ask, you and I are going out to dinner tonight, Larry. What the hell are you going to order? Um, I like places that, you know— uh, we're gonna, the, we're gonna get ahead of cabbage, aren't we? The pedigree of the city. That's their what we going to get.
2: It's actually gotten better in that, you know, the kind of farm to table movement, if you want to call it that, has led to a lot more restaurants listing where their ingredients come from. And there's the, the brands uh say, say for beef and pork, like your Nyman Ranch and your Creekstone Farms that make drug-free branded beef. And that typically, if it's on the menu, is gonna be real because they have lawyers going around looking at the restaurants.
0: And even Purdue Chicken now, their whole branding categories. We do we use no antibiotics.
2: Yes, but the, the, the problem with the poultry industry is um, the, the poultry industry has always used a lot of antibiotics, but unlike beef, they're not allowed to use hormones or steroids, but what they do is they sell a lot of chicken now that says hormone-free, steroid-free, and they charge more for it, even though all chicken is at. It would be like selling water that says it's uh, soda-free. It just makes no sense, but they found consumers will pay more if they put that on the label.
0: You know what? We are going to order cabbage tonight. I think it's all we can get. <laughs> Maybe kimchi. We're in Vancouver. How, many, how much fake kimchi is there? Uh, I haven't found any yet. Oh, my God. All
2: right, so is there anything you will eat? Um, yeah, I, I like to eat um, you know seasonal foods at the source, and you know this is is a travel show, so you know um, when you go to places I- and in my book that's what I do. I take the reader to Parma in Italy, and I show them how Parmigiano Reggiano is made and Prosciutto di Parma is made, and why those are great foods. And then I tell them about the problems with those foods in this country, and I do the same for Kobe beef and a lot of these products. So my recommendation is eat Kobe eat, beef in Japan, eat Kobe beef in Japan, and eat what the locals eat. In, in most of the world, we talk about seafood, and most of the world, people eat whole fish. They don't really do that in the U.S. If you order a red snapper or a yellow tuna, you're going to get it if you get the fish. But here, we don't. We just get a cut-up filet covered in sauce. And we don't know what's in it. We there. have no idea what it is.
0: Let's go have lunch right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Larry Olmsted, the author of Real Food, Fake Food, you completely depressed me. But- but there are not. But in the book, there's guidance as to how you find out.
2: There is, and there's a lot about what makes real food so good, or what we call food porn. People come out actually tell me, you know, I was you hungry after till the I end. read Food your porn. Book. Yeah. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> That's it. Food yep. porn. A lot of food porn in the book. Um, no pictures, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see the tuna, but we won't go there. Hey, that concludes another episode of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Gieber here from CBS News. We'll be back next time.